0: Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being here with us this morning at Oak City Church. Uh, whether you're here in our parking lot or online, um, we're grateful that We have the chance to gather together in whatever way we get to gather together right now. And um, I'd like to welcome you if you're visiting uh, online or if you're visiting in person. We have some folks here uh, this morning they are new, so it's a socially distanced, global pandemic-appropriate welcome to you guys this morning. We're really glad that uh, God has brought you here um, to worship with us this morning. And man, thank God for some nice weather. I'm from the north. I've met people this morning that are from Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan. We've got folks from Ohio, Illinois. Like, we've got northerners here. This is good northern September weather, and it's great to have an outdoor service in this type of weather. So, Lord, thank you for blessing us with this. I just wanna, I'm going to pray before I get started real quick. We've got a family that's in the hospital right now with an infant that may have some type of infection. So I'm going to pray for the Browns and for their new son, Aaron, and just for other stuff that's going on right now. So, Lord, we do lift up folks um, in our church that are just going through some things right now. Lord, we pray for Scott and Terry. We're thankful for uh, a healthy birth of a baby boy, and we pray for whatever complications are going on right now. Um, As we've just sung, you are a God of power, and you are a God that never lets us down, and so we lift them up to you, God, and we ask for your blessing upon them and on their son. We ask for uh, peace. We ask for a relief from anxiety. We ask for healing, and we ask that they would get home soon from the hospital, Lord, and just pray for others in our congregation, in our city that are uh, in the midst of just hard things. I mean, this pandemic is hard and mental health issues are going through the roof right now. And so we pray, Lord, um, that you would bring relief to people, that you would bring relief to us, Lord. We pray for, for, for vaccines and whatever we need, Lord, um, right now in the midst of this. Um, and yet, Lord, we know you're good in the middle of it and that you're at work in the middle of it, God. And so we pray that we can see the ways that you are at work in us and through us and around us, God, and um, and we're thankful that we can know that you're there and that you're good, and we know that because of your son and what he's done for us. So we love you. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. I pray that you would bless your word to us this morning, and um, amen. Um, all right, we, uh, we are just starting a series. Uh, this is the second week called Peter and Every Man's Guide to Spiritual Formation, and so I'm going to go through A series of um, scenes from the life of the Apostle Peter in the Bible and just talk about just how he grows in Christ and how that ties to how we grow in our relationship with the Lord. And um, last week was a kind of a setup, an intro for this, and it was about change. And we need to change because we're not the people that that God made us to be. And if you don't need to change, then you don't need to worry about how Peter changed. It doesn't matter because you don't think you need to change. But if you do need to change, then it's helpful to have a roadmap of what that looks like, and have an idea of where you are. So, what I'm going to offer over the next couple weeks is an imperfect framework of what change looks like, based on a handful of things that um, different things that God's been speaking to me about, including the life of Peter over the past few months, that seem to have coalesced uh, into this series about what it looks like to grow. And I'm going to harken back for a minute. We had a family that that left last; they moved overseas last fall. The Quins and and we have families come and go a lot, and so it, it, just based on circumstance, it can be hard to celebrate the way we could celebrate with the Quins. The Quins had come to the church about six months after the church started. they have been here for years, um, and they had grown a ton. There is a quote that uh, someone, someone gave to me a few months ago that I've used a few times. It's a guy named Dallas Willard that said, Christians shouldn't count disciples, they should weigh disciples. And we should do both, but his point was, we might spend too much time on numbers and not enough time on growth. And so we just use that metaphor of like gaining weight, that um, the job of the church is like to, to metaphorically fatten up their Christians, like to gain some weight. And the Quins had gotten heavy as Christians during their time here. And we talked about that, how if they had come in on a scale of one to a hundred at about a five, just kind of with some background in Jesus, but but not following Jesus and growing to the point of deciding to follow Jesus and get baptized and get into home groups and Bible studies to the point where they were leading things. And, and when they left, they were like on a scale of 180, 85, 90 heavy Christians, um, folks whose walk I really, really admired, and he led them overseas. And that is the joy of the church. And the goal of the church is to see people grow in their commitment to and their ability to follow Jesus, their trust, in what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's the most exciting thing about the church is that. um, There's a line that Paul says in Thessalonians that I caught on to a few years ago that I I hadn't seen before. Um, Not in this way, but he says, what is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? You, the church, are our our glory and our joy. And so for as a pastor, that's, that's the joy, you know, is seeing people grow. But if you've been... At this church, if you have been at a church for a while, uh, you've been a part of that because that's how people grow. It's not the pastor; it's the church. It's the way God uses the church. It's all the things. It's all the home groups. It's all the Bible studies. It's all the Sunday mornings. It's all the children's ministry classes. It's all of that stuff works together to see people grow up in the Lord and God change change their lives. And so we should all be celebrating that. But wherever you, like wherever you are with Christ, you're still growing. Like you're never done. And so we're still on this journey. And that looks different in different phases. Um, There's a book that I read recently for a pastor's retreat called The Critical Journey. Not a perfect book, but a helpful book. I think of it a bit like any of those personality tests. They're helpful. You can go overboard with any of them. But they're helpful frameworks within which to understand yourself and the people around you. And so this book was uh, similar to that. Not the be-all, end-all, but useful. And talked about stages that we go through Uh, on our, you know, in in growing in Christ, and that you don't, you're never just in one stage, and you can kind of float back and forth between the stages, but generally this is the progression that you go through, and it's all based on scripture, and a lot of it we're going to see in the life of Peter, but they talk about these six stages. So the first one is the recognition of God, meaning not just that you're know that God exists. Everybody has an idea that God is there, but that God really matters in your life. And that's what I'm going to talk about today, so I won't spend any time there. But that's the first stage. The second stage is this life of discipleship, where you embrace the gospel and you start to realize that the gospel affects every aspect of your life. And so you you learn it, you learn about how it matters. And you're, I mean, you're just all in with it. Like, you can't get enough of it. You're reading your Bible, you're going to Bible studies. There's some hard things because there's some areas of your life that God wants to reshape. And so That happens in the second stage. And the third stage they call the productive life, where you realize, you know, it's not just about acknowledging who Christ is and starting to follow him, but then advocating for him. And you're a part of that team that is the church. And so, you know, you start to serve and you start to lead and you start to embrace the gifts that you have and be a part of what God is doing um, a lot through the church, but could be through other ministries as well. And then they talk about the inward journey, stage four. And stage four is where the productive life. Maybe isn't quite as productive as it seems on paper or on a whiteboard that it should be, and so you get a little bit disillusioned uh, with the way things are going, or maybe you get disillusioned with with the church, or maybe you get disillusioned with God Himself, and you start asking some questions, and it's just a natural stage. But if you don't know it's a natural stage, it's a hard stage, and they talk about between stage four and five hitting a wall, um, and then stage five, if you get through that, is an, it's called the outward journey, which is. Uh, a way of maybe a, a deeper surrender to the Lord, and then finally the life of love, which is the last stage, and I won't say that I'm there that. When I'm there, I'm going to start hugging everybody all the time, which if you've been around it's just a Midwest thing, we We're, weren't as big of huggers, but everybody down here hugs. So uh, those, those, that framework, um, is a, it's a helpful framework. Everybody I've talked to since then has been like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and so I'm hoping that it will for you. I, I think about it in this way. A few years ago, I had a buddy that was um, trying to get me to run a marathon. I would started running with him, and so he wanted me to run a long ways. And I was up for that, but he kept suggesting the Olmstead Marathon, which is a trail marathon in Olmstead Park, like with a bunch of hills. It's possibly the worst marathon you could run anywhere. And this is what he thought that I was going to run. I'm like, man, I'll run a marathon, but I'm not going to. I picked my marathon carefully. And so, someone suggested the Richmond Marathon, and I looked that up, it's known as the world's, it calls itself the world's friendliest marathon, and they might be right. Like, you, people line, people from Richmond, Richmond's a beautiful city, it's a beautiful course, people line the street the whole way that didn't have relatives running, they're just from Richmond, and this is what they do, and so they're cheering you on the whole way, and that's super helpful. There was one guy that had a handful of signs that made no sense but were really funny, And he would pop up at different places and just make you laugh so that it was helpful so that you could forget about the pain that you were enduring going through a marathon. And there were other people that dressed up as dinosaurs along the way. It was super cool, you know. (laughs) So it was the friendliest marathon. The most important thing about choosing that marathon is that it was pretty flat, uh, which is what I want in a marathon. Um, And so I studied the course. But I got on the course, and I didn't study the course carefully enough. Because about mile 15, it started going uphill, and it didn't go like super uphill, but it went uphill for about three miles, and I didn't see that coming. And so after a mile of that, I'm like, this has got to stop soon. And after two miles, I thought, I guess this, mar- this marathon's like uphill the rest of the way. And after three miles, it stopped, and so did I. Uh, there was a bathroom on the left-hand side. I didn't really need to use the bathroom, but I thought, there's a bathroom. I should probably use the bathroom. And I stopped. That was a bad idea. I lost the people that I was running with. That was a bad idea because there was motivation in keeping up with those people, and the rest of that marathon was a bit of a train wreck. It would have helped to know where I was on the course when the course got hard, you know? And I feel the same way about walking with Christ. Like, it's helpful to know where you are on the course, and it's helpful to know, like, what the course looks like for the people around you so that you can help them wherever they are on the course. One of the discussions that we've been having um, as elders is about how we as a church now, uh, in a lot of ways, we planted with a lot of young 20-somethings and families. We're now the people that we wished we'd had alongside us when we planted the church. Like when we planted the church, we had the Meeks. That was about it, you know. We're now approaching the place in life where the Meeks were when they planted the church with us, and so now we can be that to the people around us, but we got to like change our mindset about that. And this type of framework, I think, helps us do that and understand where we are and where the people around us are. So that's where this series is going. And as I said, we're going to look at scenes from the life of Peter. And this first one is this first stage, recognizing the reality of God. This is the first bit of Peter we get in the gospel. So John chapter 1, one of the two who had heard John, and that's John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So. John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. John the Baptist has disciples, but those disciples start following Jesus, and John the Baptist is like, go for it. And um, Simon, Simon Peter is the same guy. So if you're new to this stuff, Simon, Jesus is about to say, I'm going to change your name to Peter. So whenever I say Simon or whenever I say Peter, I'm talking about the same guy. I'm probably going to mix him up this morning. He first, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon, who's Peter, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ, And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So this is what I think happens at the beginning of this recognition of God stage. We're made aware of Jesus, but we're not impacted by Jesus. Like we're made aware of him in a new way, but he doesn't really impact our life. Somebody starts telling you about Jesus. And this has been happening since this verse in the Bible when Andrew bought Peter, to Jesus. Somebody's been telling somebody about Jesus and saying, you got to meet this Jesus guy like every day in history from that point until now. And it's probably happened to you at some time. I mean, you may have grown up in a Christian's home, so your parents are like, I got to tell you about Jesus. Or you may have friends that are Christians, and so they said, we got to tell you about Jesus. Or neighbors, or a boss, or a co-worker, or just things in the culture that tell you about Jesus. Um, It's to the point where, you know, it's a parody in culture. There's a great clip from a comedian named Jim Gaffigan, where he says to his audience, he said, uh, he said, I want, I do want everyone to feel comfortable. And that's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And his audience just bursts into laughter, you know, because it's just an awkward topic. He mimics them saying, he better not. Uh, Because it can, it ends up being an uncomfortable conversation a lot of the time. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is just that the name of Jesus has power. And so you can't, you can talk about God. That's different than talking about Jesus. You bring up Jesus and Jesus has teeth and it means something. And so it can make people uncomfortable, but it also can make people uncomfortable because um, we as Christians have not done a great job of representing Jesus over time. But it also can be uncomfortable because people just aren't there yet and they don't want to deal with it. And, and Many of us, like, we're at that stage of our life where we someone would ask us or tell us, you know, about Jesus or want to talk more about it, and we just didn't want anything to do with it because we had bigger fish to fry at that moment in our life, um, because we'd had a bad experience with the church or with Christians, became we, because we came from a different religious background. Um, I mean, a lot of us remember that stage. Some of us don't because you grew up in church every week, and so, like, and it just took, you know, but a lot of us remember what that time in life, Was like, But then something changes and all of a sudden you're not so uncomfortable with the conversation. You know, it could be you go through a rough patch in your life and you realize maybe I do need something and maybe I need to figure out what Jesus is about. Um, If only to check that off the list, you know. It could be that you go through a good time in your life that doesn't satisfy the way you thought it was supposed to satisfy and you start checking things out for the same reason. Um... It could be a lot of folks who were raised in church, but then they go away from it for a few years, and then they end up realizing, maturing to a point where they're like, I need to, I need to embrace that. Again, I say this a lot to parents, raise your kids in church, and their compass is always going to point north. You know, they'll know where home is. It could be that a person follows Jesus in a really compelling way, and so you need to find out more about that, or a person that you respect encourages you towards Jesus, and because you respect that person so much, you decide you want to check out you know, the thing that's most important to them. And I think this is where Peter is. You know, Andrew says, hey, you got to check this out. We found the Messiah. And so in our terms, Peter starts going to church. You know, he hangs out with Andrew's buddies a few times. He goes to a cookout. Maybe he reconnects with you or for us, you reconnect with family that are following Jesus. But honestly, we tend not to get it yet. Like we're in process, but we're not quite there. And we're only at the beginning stages of recognition. We're made aware of Jesus. But Jesus isn't really having an impact on our life. We see this with Peter, and it starts to change. So this is from, uh, from Luke's Gospel. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had got out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Here's how I'd put this, and I remember this time in my life, and I can recognize it in, you know, people, again, that are just on their way to Christ. I think we get to a stage where we think Jesus could use our help without understanding how much we need Jesus' help. Uh, And that's just a stage of growth. You know, we don't really get how much we need Jesus. Statistically, most people believe in God. Um, and, And people believe that Jesus was, but they believe Jesus was like a prophet or a teacher, but not... Divine, and that's uh, most people. I think believe in a God that has no teeth. Um, It's a God that, if they really evaluate it, is more a God of God is more a God of their creation than they are a creation of God. And so God really can't tell them anything. They don't have a specific reason for believing that God would be a specific way. Um, That's why the Bible is is just so important to us. And there are many great reasons to to believe in the validity of the Bible, and we go through that from time to time. And if you have questions about that, I would love to sit down and talk with you about that. But part of that is so that we don't define God, God defines us. We don't create God, but God is the one that created us. And so if your God doesn't disagree with you about anything meaningful, or can't, or you don't allow God to disagree with you about anything meaningful, if there's no real conviction that change is necessary in you and not just other people, If your God isn't able to demand a lifestyle of sacrifice from you, if he doesn't put you in situations that make no sense to you, but you're still convinced that he has you there for a reason, then he's probably not really God. You are. Uh, It's convenient to defer to that kind of God every once in a while and feel better about yourself, but that God doesn't really have the ability to change your mind or behavior or to make a real difference in your life. That God is not a master and a king for you, he's more like a mascot or maybe a cheerleader of sorts. And that's a stage to grow through. God, God's not that type of God. Jesus is not going to be that type of God in your life. Jesus is going to press the issue, and he's going to do that in just a second with Peter. I remember that time in my life when I think through these stages. The early ones are kind of difficult because I grew up in a church, but I don't really feel like I understood the gospel from that church. And then Late in high school, I understood the gospel, and it made a lot of sense to me, and I started to follow Jesus, but then I ended up with these questions in college, and then I stopped, and then I got through college, and then I was paying lip service to Jesus, and I think I was still, in a way, in this phase, you know, and I would, um, there's some guys that I worked with that went to a men's Bible study, and so I'd go to it, and I could kind of talk the talk a little bit, because I knew a few things, and I'd go to church every once in a while, and um, I would even put some money in the plate, but I would... Uh, I, would have, I would have called myself not a tither, but a tipper. I heard a pastor say this years ago, and I thought, I don't think I can say that to people, but, but I can. You know, <laughs> when it comes to giving, like God wants us to give sacrificially of the first fruits that, that he gives us so that we, we know who it comes from. But a lot of times we think we're doing God a favor and we tip him a little bit. And that's where I was in my life. Um, and God, God did not want me there. I was in a relationship that wasn't a healthy relationship. My ego was 100% wrapped up in my job. And not in who God said I was. I remember being at a Bible study in this phase where um, I was talking to. It was a group of a group of twenty somethings from the church that I was that I just started going to, and um, and we were talking about something. I was asked, answering a question in a Bible study where I was talking about how I felt like my life was a bit like a puzzle, and there were different pieces that you needed in place. And so family was a piece, and my job was a piece, and relationships was a piece, and. And spirituality, or Jesus, was a piece. And that's totally not true. Jesus is either the table on which you build the puzzle or the picture that the puzzle makes, but he ain't a piece of your puzzle, you know? Uh, But then I thought that's what it was. And I remember this guy who was about 10 years older than me looking at me across the room. He didn't say anything, but his look said, I don't know how to say this to you, and I don't need to because you're going to figure it out soon enough. But you have no idea what you're talking about, man. <laughs> and that's just where I was. And that's, I was in control of God and God was not in control of me. And that does not work. Uh, when you really recognize God as God, that has to change. And Jesus is going to press that issue. So this is what happens next in the story with Peter. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus, he finishes his sermon, brings the boat back in, says to Simon, put out in the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon says, Master, we toiled all night, and we took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And this is just an interesting transition for Simon, because uh, Jesus, it, like, when, when he asks for the boat and says, Hey, can I go do my sermon in your boat? He's asking Peter to help him with his business. Now Jesus is saying, Peter, let me help you with your business. And there's a transition when Jesus wants to get into your business, and you're going to have to decide whether to let him get into your business or not. And you can see the doubt in Peter in how he responds. He says, Master, we've been fishing all night because that's how you fished. You fished at night. You didn't fish during the day. I'm a fisherman, Jesus. You're a preacher. Why don't you stick to the preaching and I'll stick to the fishing? Like he really, but if you say so, which is a stage, you know, like there's the beginnings of trust there. And so he lets his boat out into the deep. And when they'd done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both the boats, and they both began to sink. And Simon Peter saw it. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Jesus' blows his mind in that moment and that's what jesus has to do to us is just blow our minds and we recognize he's something far more than what we thought that he was there's such humility in the statement depart from me for i am a sinful man i don't belong in the same space as you jesus is no longer just a a prophet or a teacher on the same plane he is something completely other in peter's mind he doesn't say i've committed a few sins he says, "I am at my core something fundamentally different than what you are, and we don't belong in the same space." Like he's starting to see the grace of God. That's when we—that's recognition of who Christ is and what He's done, and that God is something other than than what we may have thought that God was. That He really matters in our life. There is a um, a book that I recalled this week that I probably picked up 10 years ago called I Once Was Lost, and it's, it's, um, it's really about like this, it's really the stages that people go through in this one stage of the recognition of God, and this guy just talked about in our age how people go through this stage of from distrust to trust, and so, and I think people do have a fundamental distrust of Christians in our culture, or increasingly they do. And so you get to a place where there's, there is someone that's close to you that's following Jesus that all of a sudden you trust them a bit because God's at work in you and because you've developed a relationship and because they're trustworthy. And that's a step. Um, you go from complacent to curious to where you don't think you need anything to you look at Jesus and think and, and, and you know, look at this person following Christ and think maybe there's something more there for me. You go from being closed to change in your life to being open to change in your life to thinking I'm on a path and for me this puzzle works and makes shape and I'm, I am almost got it the way that I want to thinking I need to scrap this whole thing because Jesus has something else in mind for me. Uh, from meandering to seeking to where this really starts to matter and there are answers that you have to get and then crossing the threshold of faith and that's where Peter is to where you, um, you get to a place of surrender. I um, I read someone this week that suggested that people come to faith in Christ through a sense of awe or a sense of need, and that's what's happening during this stage. You know, an awe can be like, um, there's something great about doing this outside. It might be better if we weren't in the middle of the city, you know, but this is still a pretty nice spot uh, to worship the Lord outside, and there's just something about being on a beach and staring at the ocean, Uh, being on a mountain and looking at, like, the, the, Um, generates awe in you and makes you think thoughts towards God. Science can be a source of awe. You know, people talk about the tension between science and religion, but you read people in the hard sciences, and that creates a sense of awe that this stuff couldn't have just happened the way that it happened. Like, there's got to be something behind it, and it it can lead people to faith. Morality can create a sense of awe. For C.S. Lewis, that was the thing that did it for him. There ought not be an ought. And so where did the sense of morality that we have come to? And when you really start thinking through that, uh, it leads you to the divine, the birth of a child. For a lot of people in the phase of life that a lot of folks in our church are, they have a child, and that changes That changes everything. It changes your perspective on everything and leads people um, to a place of asking questions about the Lord and exploring Jesus, and Jesus should lead to a sense of awe uh, when you really start getting closer to Jesus I was reading a verse this week in Isaiah little verse I don't think I'd really ever seen it before but um Isaiah 45 he writes truly you are a God who hides himself oh God of Israel the Savior God hides himself and um I was reading this week a little bit about it was a, a guy that was a worship leader and I wasn't familiar with him but he was apparently of some prominence And he renounced his faith. He's deconstructing his faith, which happens. And it was on Twitter and he was saying that he's really grateful for some Christians that have come alongside him kind of unexpectedly and just tried to help him out through this time and, you know, help him deal with some questions that he has and be real gentle with them. But one of his questions was about why doesn't God make himself more obvious? I feel like this is, on these stages, these six stages, this is a stage four question. It Maybe it's a stage one or two question for you, but it's a stage four question that you get to at some point of like, God, why don't you make yourself more obvious to people? Why are you hidden? And yet, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus shows us exactly what God is like in his character and his nature because he's God. That's Jesus. And at the same time, Jesus can say, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And at the same time, I feel like the guy from Princess Bride, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus and Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When you really come to Jesus, you have to come to that Jesus, to all those things, this like unbelievable, indescribable, incredibly powerful, and yet totally relatable and approachable, Jesus. And I think in this moment, that's what Peter realizes. Like Peter, Jesus is all those things, and and he's blown away by it. And that's how you that's how you come to him. Um, and awe that awe will draw you through those thresholds to faith in Christ. They said awe, and the need and need will do it too when things just don't work out or you're at the end of your rope. When you're literally out of options, and sometimes God brings us to that point, or we just get ourselves to that point. Or when things do work out, but they don't satisfy, uh, and you realize there's something more. When you're lonely, uh, when you're empty, uh, when you get to a place where the things that you've been using to cure your loneliness and emptiness become addictions for you, uh, and you feel trapped. There's a line from, I think it's from C.S. Lewis, who says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pain. And so need can draw us across these thresholds towards Jesus. And Peter displays both. Like he has an awe that leads him to need. You know, he's curious about Jesus, but then Peter's a really good fisherman. Like he's got a successful, thriving fishing business, and Jesus is 10 million times a better fisherman than he is. Jesus gives him just a glimpse of his power. And I feel like in this early stage, this happens to so many of us, where Jesus gives us a glimpse of something that you don't get in every stage, but he gives us a glimpse of who he is and that power, and it just draws us to him, and it leads to surrender. And surrender has to be the thing that happens when you truly recognize who God is, because it's the only rational option if God is God and you are you. And God brings you to that place. That Colossians passage goes on, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He's reconciled us to himself. I think this verse is in your handout from Timothy where Paul says to Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And so this is, like in that recognition stage, someone's going to say, I need to tell you about Jesus. This is how that person, how, this is how you need to act towards the people around you that don't know Jesus. Don't be quarrelsome, but kind. Know what you're talking about. Be able to teach. Be patient. And if you need to correct people, do it with gentleness. That God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. And this verse is hard. But helpful, man, that there is a place where we come to our senses, and that is something that God has done in us. And it probably doesn't feel like that at the time, but in hindsight, you look at it and think, that's what happened. And that's what needs to happen. That God needs to bring us to our senses and draw us to Himself. And again, I remember those moments, that time in my life, well, you know? And I had gotten to a place where. I had the things, but they didn't satisfy, and I just knew I wasn't where I was supposed to be, and I, and I knew what he was, and so I surrendered and said to him, like, I have no idea what I'm doing, God, and if, I, I was honest with him. I said, I'm not sure you know what you're doing, but I'm just going to surrender and do what you want me to do and trust that you're going to answer those questions, and if you don't, I might move on. It was probably a bad idea, and, but, but it, that's what I did, and that was a surrender in what I needed to do. And God changed my life, Uh, totally changed my life in six months and set me on a path because I gave him control. And that's what starts to happen in this stage. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind but god but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace we've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works that no one would boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a time when it all starts to make some sense, where the gospel starts to make some sense, and that happens because God is doing something in you, and you don't need a good explanation for it. You just need to surrender to it. You need to surrender to it. And when you do that, he begins to change your life. This is where that passage ends off with Peter. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed Jesus. And that's what happens in that stage of recognition of God. You get to the end of it and you're like, I'm going to give my life to you. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to accept who you are and what you've done for me and begin that journey with you. Um, One author said, conversion is not an arrival at our final destination, it's the acquisition of a compass. And that makes sense because now you start your path with him. It's helpful to remember um, how this works. It's helpful, I mean it's helpful for me this week to think back on that time in my life and some of the details that I had forgotten and just to be grateful and to look in hindsight Like to look at that time in my life through the scriptures that I was working through this week. It's helpful to know that this is how God works in the lives of the people around us. And just to be patient with the things that God is doing. And if you're there right now, like if you hear these things and you think, man, this is where I've been. These are the things that that God has been doing in me. Then it's helpful to realize that and to surrender to him in it. Uh, that's what baptism is. That's why baptism is a big thing, because for a lot of people, they don't remember the moment. You know, some people do. Like, they walk the aisle. They remember the moment that they surrendered. Some people don't, but they realize that they have. And baptism is Christ's call to us to acknowledge that, you know, to the people around us, but even to ourselves, to acknowledge, yes, I have surrendered to him. And it's a picture of what's happened, that we have died with Christ, and we have been raised to new life in Christ, and these it attests to the things that Scripture says are true about us. And so if you're in that stage where it's like this is it, and you're either in that stage or you're just past that stage, and you haven't gotten baptized, then we've got some folks that are ready to get baptized. We need to find a river or something before it gets too cold and baptize some folks, you know. Um, But you should do that. Um, You should do that because Christ calls you to that you should do that for yourself. You should do that for the folks around you as an acknowledgement that you have surrendered to who Christ is and what he's done and decided uh, to follow him. We are going to, um, the band can come back up here, and so we are going to, we are going to have our COVID communion this morning. Um, I I brought I, I bought some of these things this week, and you should have gotten one of these. And so if you have done that, if you've surrendered to who Christ is and what he's done for you, um, he commands us to baptism. He also commands us to remember these things that he's done. And so we haven't been able to do this for months. Uh, and it's something to be able to, to do it again. And um, these little things have been around for a long time. And to be honest with you, I made fun of them when I first saw them. But now I'm super thankful that we have them. And so if you are able, are you able to tear off the top part and to get the, um, the uh, little wafer out of there? Hold up your little wafer if you got it. Does anybody need one of these? Alan's got some more in the back. Um, if you're new normally we do this on a normal Sunday morning we'll have some tables set up and let you do this you know when you feel like you're ready uh, during during our music but as things are we're going to do this together so this is uh, the body of Christ uh, that's broken for us we do this in remembrance of him And if you want to open up your um, cup of juice. Jesus said this is his blood that's been poured out for us. And so we drink this in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you for the body and blood of Jesus. We thank you that you have reconciled us to yourself through the work of your son on a cross Lord we thank you that the tomb is empty and that it demonstrates the power that he has um, in life and over death we thank you that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in us and around us and you are at work God give us eyes to recognize the work that you're doing Lord we thank you um, that you our God of power, who didn't leave us uh, to our sin, Lord, but rescued us from it. We thank you that you bring us to places of surrender. um, And Father, pray that you would help us to embrace that and to continue to give you control over our lives, Lord. And would you use us to bring others to yourself. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name.